readers, and welcome to episode 22 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host, Ang Harrod, and were you into choose your own adventure books when you were a kid? Maybe you're into them now, because today we're going to be talking to a special guest, local author Felicity Banks, all about how you can get your interactive fiction fix as an adult. There's so many different ways to tell a story that includes the reader. There are also heaps of book news stories, and don't forget, you can find out more information about all the stories discussed in each episode of Lost the Plot by checking out the show notes on the Tinted Edges webpage. Also, this podcast has been nominated for the Australian Podcast Awards, so if you enjoy Lost the Plot, you can chuck it a vote by checking out the link. Voting closes on the 11th of April. So we have just a couple of book updates. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about book lists for 2018. And if you haven't gotten your reading goals in order yet, don't despair. Libraries ACT has released its own reading challenge. You can download their challenge bookmark from their website, or you can pop into one of the libraries and grab a hard copy and tick the books off as you go. There are 30 challenges on the list, which I think is pretty achievable in a year. You might also remember the sad news last month that author Ursula K. Le Guin died. In Memorial, book website Book Riot have published a list of 75 books that were recommended by Le Guin after scouring through interviews, blurbs of books that she wrote, and reviews she did. I've actually only read 17 books from this list, so I've obviously got a bit of catching up to do. There's also been an exciting update about our friend Sally from Asia Bookroom, who we spoke to back in episode 8 and episode 19. Well, Sally has been named new president of the International League of Antiquitarian Booksellers. Big congratulations to Sally. There has been a fair bit going on in Books for the World, especially to do with street libraries. It's not often I get a chance to talk about gardening on this podcast, which is probably also to do with the fact that I am a terrible gardener. Anyway, Aussie icon Costa Georgiadis has brought street libraries into the mainstream on an episode of Gardening Australia. He has some great ideas and tips on how to make a street library yourself, and you can check out episode 2 of series 29 on ABC iView. Meanwhile, in Sydney, there has been a street library crime. A bright yellow street library curated by a Chris Briggs has been stolen from Newtown. The library had only been up for a couple of days and it hadn't been fixed down yet, so it was just resting on a wall in the inner Sydney suburb. However, that definitely does not make it okay to just take it. I mean, what does someone even do with a stolen street library anyway? Stick it up somewhere else for a different community to enjoy? Not sure. So if you see a butter yellow street library hanging around somewhere in Sydney, make sure you get in touch with Chris so he can go and try and reclaim it. In more uplifting news, Libraries ACT has been running their adorable Story Dogs program. Kids aged 7 to 12 can register to practice their reading with volunteer dogs like Dashie the Greyhound. There are a couple of Term 1 sessions still to go, but the program has been really popular, so if you want to register, make sure you get in early. 
Now, if you really want to pick me up, I cannot recommend enough a fantastic episode of this Facebook video series called Returning the Favour. Episode 10 of Season 2, which went up in February, is about returning the favour to an absolute inspiration of a man, a guy called Golden Martinez, who runs a program called Get Focused, which helps inspire young kids to read through exercise. It really is a wonderful episode, and I cannot believe that I have now recommended two TV episodes in a podcast about books, but here we are. So if you're feeling a bit inspired to do some good, our friends at Sokola Gunung Merapi are running a fundraising campaign. If you've been listening since the earlier episodes, you might remember that our charity Books for the World ran a fundraising campaign to help get Yasmin and Fajar get their wonderful idea for a school on the slopes of a volcano in central Java, Indonesia, up and running. The campaign was a great success, and they managed to fix the school building, install a brilliant jungle-themed library, and fill it with books and make some much-needed repairs to the facilities. Now, they are taking the next step to make sure that Sokola Gunung Merapi is sustainable so that they can keep on teaching kids. And you can check out the campaign and the different donation tiers at chuffed.org. Now, the biggest news story for this episode is a little bit of a downer. If you live in the Canberra region, you may have noticed that there was a little bit of rain on Sunday the 25th of February. And by a little bit, I mean more than the average rainfall for the month in a single day that led to flash flooding across the north of the city, road closures, it was absolute chaos. Now, unfortunately, Dixon Library had to only open with limited services and they had to get the fans out and try and dry out the carpet. Um, and Chifley Library at the Australian National University also had to close completely, along with all the campus's classes being cancelled. Unfortunately, lots of rare books at the Chifley Library in the basement were damaged in the flood, and there has been a huge salvage operation being undertaken um, as we speak. I shared the article on the Tinted Edges Facebook page, and look, I admit, I really probably should have put a content warning, because if you get upset by damaged books, this is a pretty upsetting article. Nevertheless, librarian Roxanne Missingham is confident that it can be rebuilt and efforts are already underway to save the most important books. And you might remember a while ago my grandma put a book that I bought her in the freezer to do something about the mould that it had gotten in it somehow. And it turns out that she was exactly on the money because that is what the experts have done. They've been putting the Chifley books that they want to save in sealed bags and sticking them in the freezer to avoid any additional damage. So we're getting into book awards season and there is a lot of news about book awards this month. The richest literary prize in Australia, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, were announced and Sarah Krasnerstein won $125,000 and two awards the Prize for Literature and Best Nonfiction for her book, The Trauma Cleaner. I was very lucky to meet Sarah recently and I cannot wait to read her book, which is about the life and work of Sandra Pankhurst, a trans woman who runs an extreme cleaning company down in Melbourne. I've got a copy of the book and I'm really excited to read it. The 2018 Stella Prize shortlist has been announced with six books vying for Australia's award for extraordinary books by women. The books nominated are The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree by Shakufe Azar, 
Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman, which I have read, which is amazing and everybody should read it. The Life to Come by Michelle de Cresta. An Uncertain Grace by Chrissy Neen. The Fish Girl by Mirandi Rewo. And Tracker by Alexis Wright. So far, I've only read Terra Nullius and some great recommendations by Australian women there. And the winner is going to be announced on 12 April 2018. The new Australian Children's Laureate has been announced and Morris Gleitzman will be holding the title for the next two years. I read lots of his books as a kid and some of my favourites were Blabbermouth, Two Weeks with the Keen and that series that he did with Paul Jennings, which was like super disturbing but also amazing, called Wicked. The laureateship was founded in 2011 and is bestowed every two years on an outstanding writer or illustrator of children's books. Gleitzman is already taking the role very seriously and has penned an article on why kids need books for the ABC. The finalists of the Aurealis Awards have been announced, with way, way, way too many to list here. The Aurealis Awards are Australian Speculative Fiction Awards, with 15 categories, including Best Fantasy Novel and Best Science Fiction Novel. You can check out the full list of finalists yourself, and the awards are due to be handed out on the 31st of March, so I'll touch base on the winners next month. Finally, last episode I talked about how this is the 50th year for the Man Booker Prize, and there has been an exciting new development. There is going to be a golden Man Booker Prize, which is the best novel of the 50 best novels over the past 50 years. So five judges have been selected to pick the best novel from their assigned decade. So one judge is like from the 60s, one is from the 70s and so on. And um, the top five novels, also known as the Golden Five, will then be put to a public vote, which you, yes, you will be able to vote in. The public vote will go from the 26th of May to the 25th of June. And the Golden Man Booker Prize will be announced at the Man Booker 50 Festival on the 8th of July 2018. Now, there have been some interesting book discoveries over the past month, with technology shining a light on some old texts. Two authors have scanned some of Shakespeare's plays using plagiarism software, the kind that lecturers use when you submit your essays at university to make sure you haven't just copied somebody else's work, and have found something astonishing. It looks like Shakespeare may have drawn a lot of his inspiration from an unpublished manuscript titled A Brief Discourse of Rebellion and Rebels by a man called George North who was in the court of Queen Elizabeth and was ambassador to Sweden in the 1500s. The full article is pretty fascinating and sheds some light on how Shakespeare may have come up with some of his iconic language. Meanwhile, Another mystery remains unsolved, and the National Library of Australia has taken to social media to try to decipher a mysterious manuscript fragment written in code. The consensus in the comments is that it's definitely a type of shorthand, but is it from a novel? Is it a shopping list? Is it a love letter? Is the paper actually back to front? Is it Pittman's shorthand or another kind of shorthand? Who knows? I sure don't. But if you think you can crack the code, go check it out. Get in touch with the National Library because it still hasn't been solved yet. On to new book releases, and look, I'm sorry, but this is clearly the episode for recommending TV episodes about books, because we're going to get on to number three now. Aboriginal author and journalist Stan Grant has a new TV show called Matter of Fact, and there is a great little snippet from an episode with him and Aussie author and poet Maxine Beniba Clark. Beniba Clark recommends a fantastic-looking children's book called Welcome to Country by Auntie Joy Murphy. 
The book is about the stories of the Wurundjeri people and it looks beautifully illustrated. On the topic of Aussie children's books, local Canberra author Stephanie Owen Reader has released her book Marvelous Miss May, Queen of the Circus, the fourth in her Heritage Heroes series. The story is about a girl called May who was given away by her mum to a circus in the early 1900s and who lived an extraordinary life. Last month I talked about Tamora Pierce's new series and the first book, Tempests and Slaughter, is out. I desperately need to get my hands on this. I was a huge fan of her books as a kid. And this series is about the backstory of one of the main characters in her fantasy series, The Immortals. In celebration of the 80th anniversary of Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca, publishers Virago Press have announced a hardback edition of her novel out in March. They put up a tantalizing video of an embroidery machine, as well as a step-by-step photo essay on how the cover was made. And it looks pretty spectacular. The Guardian has also published a fascinating article on the life of du Maurier if you want to know more about the woman behind the book. Now, a while ago, back in episode 19, we talked about a controversial book, Critical of China, that was pulled from publication by publishers Allen and Unwin. Clive Hamilton's non-fiction book, Silent Invasion, was not to be, well, silenced, and Hamilton has found another publisher, and the book has now been released by Hardy Grant Books. Hamilton covers a lot of ground in his book about what he perceives as the undue influence of China on Australian politics and business, and the ABC very helpfully put together an article so comprehensive that you will hardly feel like you need to read the book at all. I sure don't. Anyway, there are some exciting releases that will be coming out later this year. Anita Heiss's anthology Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, with 52 childhood stories from a diverse range of contributors, will be out on the 16th of April 2018. A Christmas anthology called A Miniature Christmas has been announced, with 12 authors and 9 illustrators collaborating together to bring out a book later on in the year in November. And one of the authors is Juliette Morelia, who I adore. The cover has been released for the new Stephen King novel, The Outsider, which is going to be out in May. And I'm very excited to announce the upcoming release of my friend and editor of Feminazi magazine, uh, Zoya Patel's memoir, No Country Woman, which is going to be out in August. The cover has been revealed and you bet I will be reading it. There's a lot of adaptation news this month and look, basically... In short, everything is being turned into a movie or a TV show. Just everything. All of them. First of all, the rights to Gregory David Roberts' Is It, Isn't It, a novel, Shantaram, has been acquired after a furious bidding war by Anonymous Content and Paramount TV. Shantaram is about a man who escaped prison in Australia to live a wild life in India and is thought to be heavily inspired by Roberts' own experiences escaping prison and living a wild life in India. HBO has released a teaser trailer for their upcoming adaptation of Fahrenheit 451, which looks actually a bit underwhelming, but then again, I wasn't exactly whelmed by the book either. Aussie icon and singer Jimmy Barnes's biography, Working Class Boy, is being funded by Screen Australia to be turned into a documentary. And then one announcement that has everybody very excited, especially me, is BBC's upcoming adaptation of the seminal science fiction story, The War of the Worlds. Except this adaptation is going to be set in the Victorian era. The three-part series is going to be written by the same screenwriter who did the adaptation of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which was 
absolutely fantastic, so I have very high hopes for this one. The trailer is out for the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society film adaptation, and it looks actually really good. I think if you're a Downton Abbey fan, and I know I am, you'll enjoy it because it looks like half of the cast is in it. Then the release date of the TV adaptation Picnic at Hanging Rock has been announced. The new series is being headed by Natalie Dormer, who is well known from things like The Hunger Games. It's going to be out on Foxtel in May, and I probably won't be watching it because I don't want to pay for Foxtel. Now, it's not just TV adaptations that have me excited this month. There is news of a really exciting computer game adaptation. When I was a kid, I absolutely devoured the Red Wall series by Brian Jakes, which was basically about medieval woodland creatures running around the forest divided along species lines. He sadly died a few years ago, but a game developer called Soma Games has taken up the mantle and is turning his series into a computer game. So speaking of children's series, it's time for some very brief Harry Potter news. Now I don't know about you, but when I read Harry Potter and watched the films as a kid, I was always mesmerised by the idea of portraits and newspapers and images in books magically moving. Well, if you have an access to an e-reader, that can handle Kindle in motion, the magic can now become yours with the illustrated edition of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them now available in this format, complete with moving pictures of puff skeins. However, it's not all happy news in Harry Potter as yet another controversy has reared its head about the upcoming film in the franchise and the sequel to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, The Crimes of Grindelwald. J.K. Rowling revealed some time ago that Dumbledore is gay and that his relationship with dark wizard Gellert Grindelwald was more than just a friendship. However, director David Yates has said in an interview that Dumbledore's sexuality isn't going to be addressed in the upcoming film and the internet rained down on him. Rowling turned up the snark in a tweet where she wrote, being sent abuse about an interview that didn't involve me, about a screenplay I wrote but which none of the angry people have read, which is part of a five-movie series that's only one instalment in, is obviously tons of fun. That was just one story of many, many book controversies in February. Probably one of the most eyebrow-raising was an incident that happened at actor Rose McGowan's book event for her memoir Brave in New York. A trans woman challenged McGowan on comments that she had made about the experiences of trans women, and McGowan absolutely flipped her lid. McGowan has since been slammed for her outburst, which fails to acknowledge the significantly worse rates of violence perpetrated against trans women as compared with cis women. Then there was the cowboy principal in Western Australia who decided to go on a book-banning spree, condemning acclaimed Aussie authors like Tim Winton and Craig Sylvie and Nam Lee on the school curriculum for vulgar language and explicit sexual innuendo. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but how can sexual innuendo be explicit? Surely it's either innuendo or it's explicit. I mean, can you really have innuendo innuendo? Now, look, obviously book censorship is never a good idea, and lots of people, including Craig Sylvie, took it upon themselves to tell the principal it wasn't a good idea. And luckily, after the Georgiana Molloy Anglican School's English department undertook a review of what kind and what terms of reference, I presume we will never know, the principal issued a statement saying that the recommended curriculum would not be changed at this time. However, while I don't agree with book censorship, I think that there probably is a case against completely unfettered opinion, and that case 
is Lionel Shriver. The author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is admittedly an incredible book, has gotten herself into hot water again. After her opening address at the 2016 Brisbane Writers' Festival attracted a lot of criticism, she has now spoken out again against what she describes as politically correct censorship, especially around cultural appropriation. She said, and I quote, These days, straight white fiction writers whose characters, ethnicity, race, disability, sexual identity, religion, or class differs from their own can expect their work to be subjected to forensic examination, and not only on social media. Now, I think whenever you start suggesting that straight white people are being persecuted when representation and social indicators say the complete opposite, you're probably clutching at straws. Shriver has suggested that she's receiving so much scrutiny about non-white characters that she's writing that it's actually making her books whiter. Yeah, anyway... Personally, I think that literature, like lots of forms of art and media, is already dominated by white voices, and I think that if Shriver wants to write diverse characters in a sensitive way, she could probably stand to do some better consultation and research. And if you want a bit more perspective on this issue, I'd highly recommend Claire G. Coleman's article on the ownership of stories, which she also published in February. So, Lionel Shriver was not the only one who put foot directly in mouth the past month. Fantasy author Terry Goodkind made a colossal error of judgment when he decided to publicly slam the cover of his own book after it had already been selected. Goodkind wrote on Facebook, Shroud of Eternity is a great book with a very bad cover. Laughably bad. So let's have some fun with it. Tell us what you think of the cover in my next post, The Pulp Above, and we'll pick 10 random entries to win a signed copy of the hardcover. We'll pick the 10 winners on March the 1st. Everyone's welcome to play. Just cast your vote and post a comment. Heartbreakingly, the top reply was actually from the cover's artist, Bastian Lecouf Daham, who wrote, It was nice working with you, Terry. What you are doing is totally disrespectful. As if I didn't create those covers according to exactly what I was told to do. In my entire career, I have never seen an author behaving like that. Yeah. Lots of people slammed Goodkind for the post, including author Joanne Harris, who implored people not to be this guy. Goodkind wrote a strange kind of apology in response, which actually seemed to tighten the noose even further as he turned his criticism then directly to his publisher. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. In more uplifting news, our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has been posting lots of pictures recently of himself reading to his grandkids, which is one of his few policies that I can totally get behind. Some of the books he's been reading include Where is the Green Sheep, Possum Magic, and My Dog Bigsy. I love stories on getting kids to read, and there was a really great one on the Malmo City Library all the way from Sweden. The library is employed two drag queens, a gay couple known on stage as Lady Busty and Miss Shameless, to read fairy tales in a story hour with kids aged two to four. I love this idea, and apparently the performers were inspired by Drag Queen Story Hour, which originated in San Francisco, and which encourages kids to imagine a world where people can present as they wish. Now, speaking of choosing to live life how you want, it's time to learn all about interactive fiction. I 
loved interactive fiction as a kid, and one of my favourite books, which I have lost somewhere and I'm still trying to recover, was a game book called Twist of Fate. It was this fantastically constructed choose-your-own-adventure where you selected your character and items and abilities, and every choice you made radically affected where you ended up in this sort of Middle Eastern-inspired fantasy land. I also have always had a soft spot for RPGs, which are roleplay games that you play on the computer and often involve character building and quests and collecting items. However, as we're about to find out, there are actually lots of different kinds of interactive fiction, and you can get amongst them all. Today it's Canberra Day, and I'm here with a local Canberra author, Felicity Banks. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So, Felicity Banks. One of your specialities is interactive fiction. Do you mind telling our listeners a bit about what that is? Sure. Well, um, most people are familiar with the Choose Your Own Adventure books from the 80s. Um, It's a lot like that, but most modern interactive fiction is digital. So it gets released as phone apps and people just read it on their phone. And the thing that's different about interactive fiction is it just gives the reader choices. So you'll get a little bit of description, a little bit of story, or you know, a monster attacking or something, and then you get to decide how you respond to that. Brilliant. And so, so you've got Choose Your Own Adventure books, which I was super into when I was mm-hmm. a kid, yep. um, and you've got kind of digital apps. Are there, what other kinds of interactive fiction are there? When you think about role-playing, you've got live-action role-playing, you've got there's host of murder, sort of board games that you can play, you've got... Yeah, uh, I've actually um, got a couple of puzzles where uh-huh. you get like a little book and you read kind of through the clues and you have no picture and you have to put together the puzzle and the puzzle gives oh, you the answer. Cool. I, I haven't even seen that. Um, but there's so many different ways to tell a story that includes the reader. Um, a lot of people come into interactive fiction from video games, yeah. which is a completely foreign angle to me. I'm definitely on the novel side, but I'm starting to understand the kind of gaming elements. So one of the biggest producers of interactive fiction is uh, Choice of Games, which is a US company, uh, choiceofgames.com. They're the reason I got into interactive fiction, because they're always looking for new writers. And if they approve your outline, um, they'll pay you in advance of up to $10,000. Wow. So that was enough to get me interested in writing an outline. And then by the time uh, by the time they said that my story wasn't right for them, I'd already written most of the story. And luckily they have... Um, uh, they will still uh, publish your story on their hosted games label uh, as long as it uh, meets a few conditions like... So over 30,000 words, there's no graphic sex or violence and you're not using someone else's intellectual property, so you can't write a Harry Potter book or something set in Middle Earth. You've got to have your own setting and characters and so forth, but then you can get published. And I found through experience that even their hosted games label um, is so popular that you actually make quite a bit of money. Right, okay. Though it's technically a rejected book. That's so wild. So is that how you first got into writing interactive fiction? Very much so. And I enjoyed writing that so much. It was so obsessive. I was starting to walk around all day and I'd like walk into a shop and be like, do you go left or right? (laughs) (laughs) It actually kind of drove me a little crazy. Um, And I still have those moments sometimes, especially with parenting. Yeah. I keep thinking, oh, I should write like a choose your own, I, I should write an interactive fiction book about parenting. 
and um, and I should randomize it so that um, so that it's more <laughs> like real life. So you're like, okay, I'm going to be an attachment parent, and then your child is just the wrong kind of child for that. You fail utterly. Oh parenting is like that you just never know what's going to work that sounds terrifying it like, does sound terrifying which put, is why I'm not going to rise it it's put your kid like in time life. out for four minutes instead of five minutes and oh no your kid ended up in jail and you're like oh my god <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's how your brain works when you're parenting <laughs> oh my gosh and so did the did the, this company just approach you out of the blue or how did you find um, out about them? Choice of Games just has a website, choiceofgames.com yeah, and right. all the information you need is on their website. Um, they have a system called ChoiceScript, which is actually really um, good. I am not good with computers, but I was able to learn it. Um, I did have a couple of calls to you know my computer nerd friends, as yeah. you always do. Um, but fundamentally, most people would be able to work it out on their own. Um, and you can have a scene sort of working within probably about half an hour and the, the way they've got it set up um, is you, you write it and you, you signal what you want the program to look like with um, pressing tab and then there are a few symbols that you use like hashtag and asterisk and that will set up your choice. Um, and then you can save it and go into a different section of the file and then you can play it like a reader. Yeah, right. Which is really good because you so get to actually, see straight away what it looks like. So, so it actually allows you to customise your own story online kind of as you're going. Wow, that's yeah. so interesting. And so before you got into that, what other kinds of things were you writing? Um, I, I've always been writing novels since I was very young. Um, the first time I finished something fairly long was when I was 16 for a contest, the inaugural Penguin Qantas Somerset College National Novella Writing Competition for school-aged students. Wow, that is a long title that is for a, long a short title. book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I believe they're still running with a slightly shorter title these days. Um, and I, I didn't win that, but I was uh, in the top 10 or so in Jeez, Australia so that was really encouraging and then I was like this is awesome I got this I'm going to get published so quickly it's going to be great and then my first novel was published 15 years later <laughs> but during that time I was probably averaging like a novel every year just kept writing and um, I actually had two novels accepted by publishers that um, died before they published my books no fault of mine, I'm sure. Wait, the novels died or the publishers the died? The publishers died. Oh my god. Not, not uh, died as in they're underground now, but died as in they had to close their doors. Oh, the companies died. I was like, yeah, how I did actually buy your novels. Kill people. <laughs> not literally. <laughs> um, and so, I know you've got a book out called Heart of Brass. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about the... Because the edition that I have actually has like a little interactive fiction bit at That's the right. end called... Um, I think it's called After the Flag Fell. That's right. Um, so the story is steampunk. I wrote it uh, about eight years ago and it was released two years ago by Odyssey Books. And it's steampunk fantasy set in Australia. So do you want to just kind of explain briefly what steampunk is? Okay, um, steampunk is... Uh, based on the second half of the 1800s, the Victorian era, um, but from that basis people are deliberately in, uh, anachronistic. So, for example, wearing corsets on the outside is not historical, but it is steampunk, it's classic steampunk. Yeah. Uh, brass goggles, 
um, steam-powered computers and things that were never steam-powered, um, but wouldn't it be cool if they were? Yeah, it's a bit sort of what if. You yeah, know? exactly. What, what if in the Victorian era there was this huge you know, technological development where people could achieve a lot of modern things with like really kind of old-timey technology yeah because yeah. yeah. we kind of i think there's a bit of nostalgia for technology that you could see it moving you know the piston yeah. pushes the thing yeah. which pushes yeah. the thing and the steam goes up there and this happens um and also it's a nice like partly removed way of looking at our own society because we we understand that oh yeah there were all these class and gender um, and race and colonialism stuff going on at that time which we have a modern perspective on but when you write novels about that you can use uh, historical stuff to comment on modern day stuff yeah. as well yeah. or in my case I tone it down massively because um, things like you know I have a character with um, an Aboriginal mother and um, I want her to be able to do things without um, just getting completely uh, stymied by realistic racism. So there is still racism in the books, but it is a, a lot toned down because they're really light-hearted, fun, adventurous books. And also because in my universe, um, there are certain magics and the magics have had an effect on society and yeah. made it a bit nicer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds lovely. Yeah. Um, and so... After the flag fell, can you tell us a little bit about oh, that? Oh, yeah. Um, that is a piece of interactive fiction. Um, it was entered in the Windhammer Prize in 2015 and it won, um, oh, which was great. Uh, and it happens in the same steampunk universe as my novel. So uh, luckily for me, I'm published by a small press and they are much more flexible than large presses. So I said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we put this in the book and amazingly she said yes and and helped with all the typesetting and all of that stuff so uh, in every edition of the novel you get the novel plus this short story and the short story is largely based on the life of Peter Laylor who's a real historical person who appears in the novel um, because the novel's Australian steampunk as well, right? right? Which is quite—I've—I've I've read quite a bit of steampunk. I don't think I've ever read Australian yeah. steampunk before. There are a few now, like the Della Mortica series and uh, Madeline Dest, D apostrophe E S T E, also writes um, steampunk set in Australia, but from middle grade. Yeah. Um, and they're both uh, doing fine. But when I started writing Heart of Brass, I literally only found one steampunk novel set in Australia, which was by James Roy, and it was Ichabod Hart and the Lighthouse Mystery. And actually, I think his other books are, are better. Um, and there just weren't any. We have some Australian writers like Richard Harland and Michael Pryor, who do really excellent steampunk, but it's just not set in Australia. Yeah. Brilliant. And so... Uh, Choose Your Own Adventure obviously is not your only foray into interactive fiction and I know you've, you've already mentioned the kind of interactive apps that you write but what I'm really excited about is that um, I'm an early reviewer of your project Murder in the Mail. Yes. So now this is this is really, really exciting. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Murder in the Mail is? 
Murder in the Mail is what happened when my print publisher and I were talking about the interactive fiction that I write and how much I get paid for it and how many readers I get, which is a lot. Um, one of my apps, for example, is uh, Choices That Matter by Tin Man Games. It's a serial interactive story app, so people get new content um, all the time. So two of the stories are finished and one's going at the moment. Um, and it's on iTunes and Google Play, and it has over a million downloads, oh which is insane. <laughs> yes. Um, so we're actually talking with a bit of a superstar here at the moment. Yes, yes, I'm super famous. <laughs> That's in, in the right circle of people, I am so the thing. <laughs> you just got to pick your people real carefully. Um, anyway, so my print publisher obviously was uh, interested in... Um, kind of doing something. Tapping and, into that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So she is the uh, main person at Odyssey Books, odysseybooks.com.au. And last year she started a new imprint for basically adult novelty books. So the line is uh, beautiful visual books for adults by Australian and New Zealand writers. Um, and so they're really interesting, extraordinary books that she publishes so I thought about it for a while and I looked into things and um, she looked into things like she bought um, one of the hunter killer boxes uh, which a lot of people have heard of the the idea of hunter killer is that a serial killer basically taunts you with what he or she has been doing oh. which is serial killing yeah and they send you kind of clues and newspaper articles and uh, physical clues like a little torch or a pill, um, a pill cup and things like that and you're meant to try and figure out uh, what's happening yeah. and it's very um, puzzle based. So I get very frustrated by puzzles. Um, so uh, one of the things I like about choice based interactive fiction is that you can always make a choice and move the story forwards. Yeah. Um, so you never get stuck. So over several months uh, I invented a story system called Murder in the Mail. So it's a crazy murder mystery, meaning that other than the murder, it's quite friendly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's quite a sweet story in some ways. And what happens is the reader, every week, they receive a package in the mail. And in each parcel, there's a letter, a postcard, a physical object, and a piece of art. So all the art I chose based on... Uh, I wanted it to be each artist to be really different to the others and I wanted it to be something really beautiful that made me want to hang it on the wall uh, and I wanted it to have clues about the murder in it. So the story will not stop if you don't figure it out, you do get to the end and find out who the killer is. However, uh, if you are able to interpret all the clues and not get distracted by the red herrings, then you can figure out who the murderer is. And there's um, 12 people in the end who got involved in the story so every character who writes to you the reader is written by a different person um, one of the writers is also an artist but most of the characters have uh, two people they have an author and an artist working together to create that character and so basically it's it's a story and it's also a sampler of Australian writers and a sampler of Australian art mm. because all the artists are Australian. Uh, one of the writers is 
resident in Australia but born in America. But we forgive her because she's really nice. <laughs> um, that's Laura Gooding. She's one of the published authors at Odyssey Books. Oh, so yeah. every single person who wrote on the story is also a published author. So yeah. if there's someone you like, you can go and read you their novel. And, and, and all the artists, except for one, have websites. So if you like the art, you can go and look at the art. And there's even a forum so that people who've only read one or two weeks and it's driving them crazy and they think they have a theory but they want to talk to other people, they can go on the forum and talk to other readers and, and share clues with each other. as well? Yeah, you yeah. can either, there's sort of clearly marked places where there are spoilers or there are not spoilers. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about, without giving too much away, yeah. but just a bit about, I guess, the setting of Murder in the Mail, like where okay. the story is based? Well, the first story is called A Bloody Birthday. And so what happens is a girl called Naomi is murdered at her own birthday party. And so it's clearly someone who was there in the house who killed her. Yeah. So the suspect list is about half a dozen people. And almost all of them are artists. So you... <clears throat> you, the character, have asked everyone to send you letters and artworks so you can try and figure it out. Yep. Um, and so that's the um, conceit behind the story, the reason that they're sending you these things. And is it based in Canberra? It is based in Canberra, although um, some of it is real and some of it is fictional. So yep. um, all the characters except for... Uh, Naomi's mother and Naomi's cousin go to these two linked campuses and they live on campus and one's a boys campus and one's a girls campus but they're just across an oval yeah. so it's kind of a, a fairly closed community yeah. um, and those two campuses are fake but everything else about Canberra is real Yeah. other than the murder yeah so if, if like me um, you come from Canberra. Reading it is quite interesting because yeah. there are a couple of tidbits about Canberra history yeah. woven into the story, which yeah. I found really, I found really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, if people want to get involved and if they want to sign up so they can get their murder in the mail packages, what's the best way to go about doing that? Well, it's funny you should mention that because <laughs> right at the moment there's a Kickstarter campaign going. So, if you go to Kickstarter.com and search for murder in the mail, it'll come up and you can order the story through there. The standard version of the story is $40. Um, at the moment, there are some really interesting prizes, like there's a premium and an ultimate version of the story where you can get larger clues, like uh, jewellery and some of the specific pens that the artists use and, and notebooks and things like that. Oh, cool. um, or you can just get the standard story for $40, or you can actually pay $20 extra to get like it all in one package so you don't have to so wait. So you don't have to wait week, week to week? week. Yeah. And Because how many instalments are there? There In this one there are nine instalments over yeah. eight weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically it's just five dollars an instalment really. Yeah, pretty much. It's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have um, realised it costs a lot to think, send things through the post but I really wanted to uh, make it something that normal people could buy. Uh, so it was tricky to keep the cost down to $40, but uh, we did it and it's good to go. Yeah, brilliant. So the Kickstarter goes until April 14th, 2018. So after that, uh, people can just email me directly at murderinthemailstories at gmail.com and I can 
arrange things from there. Yeah. And it will only be available for officially for 13 months from August this year is the official release date until September next year. And after that, it will be made into a like a normal physical book with photographs of the objects and things like that. But the really special version of the story is available now. Yeah. And it's worth getting during this time period because some of the clues are edible. Um, so you can't eat a photo or a physical book. Well, you can, but it... I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I, we're not We're not condoning eating paper on this podcast no. today. Especially novels. Maybe Especially dictionaries or like something less interesting maths books (laughs) (laughs) or cookbooks you might get some food in there if people cook like me and like spill food all over the cookbook i'm just now thinking of like this untapped genre of cookbooks where like when you lick the paper it tastes like the food wouldn't that be great and you could have like scratch and sniff bits yeah didn't they have something like that in charlie and the chocolate factory where you could lick the wallpaper oh yeah that was great why haven't why haven't they invented that yet (laughs) all right nobody take that idea that's our idea get your own ideas Brilliant. Well, I will link all of that in the show notes. So if our listeners want to go check out Murder in the Mail and get involved and get their weekly pack and find out who did what, where and when. Yeah, the simplest Um, way is just through Kickstarter at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, because Kickstarter is great because you can get the basic pack or you can, you know, get different tiers. um, And it's available, it's not just available to people in Australia as well. No, it's available all around the world. It does cost a little bit more, uh, usually. Um, yeah, because Australia is far away yes. from the rest of the <laughs> world. Australia is far away, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to leave people out. Yeah. I didn't want to leave out that one person in uh, Tunisia who really wants to read the story. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's all right, person in Tunisia. We can send it to you. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Um, so I'll link all of that information in the show notes. Great. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. <laughs> If you want to find out more about Murder in the Mail, the Kickstarter campaign, and the other things that Felicity and I chatted about, you can find all of the links on the Tinted Edges webpage. Now, the 1st of February 2018 was World Read Aloud Day, and I didn't get to do anything to celebrate it because I was trapped, trapped in work, health, and safety training. But I would love to know if you did anything. What I did manage to get involved in were the events of 14th February. No, not Valentine's Day, but Library Lovers Day. Down in Melbourne, Books on the Rail were celebrating by leaving blind date with the book Books on Trains. I really need to try and see if I can get books on a bus going here in Canberra. Hmm, watch this space. Anyway, even though I missed out on a blind date with a book on the train, I was 110% present at a fantastic little event at the Queen Bean Library. For those playing at home, Queenbeyan is a regional New South Wales town just outside the Australian Capital Territory border. And for those playing at home not from Australia, Canberra is actually Australia's capital city. I know! Anyway, the Queenbeyan Library put on a wonderful event called the Literary Love Fest, and it was just brilliant. There were snacks, virgin cocktails, a behind-the-scenes tour of the library, a walkthrough of their brand-new book bus, love letters to the library, and Lucky Door prizes, which I won again! I have been having the best luck with Lucky Door prizes recently. Anyway, the librarians there are so, so passionate about their library and their books and their work, and making sure that everybody has access to books no matter their accessibility, no matter their age. So if you live in Canberra, I really do recommend you keep an eye out for their events and go down and give them a visit. 
Now, of course, the big event of February is the Canberra Lifeline Book Fair. It was a huge affair this time around, and I managed to nab a fantastic stack of books, including lots of Booker Prize winners, because yes, I am still trying to read as many as I can to win that Instagram contest I talked about last month. And I even managed to find a book from the Vintage 21 Rainbow set that I am still collecting. But if you missed out this time, don't worry, there's going to be another book fair in July. The last event I managed to get along to was an author talk with debut novelist Stephanie Parkin at Harry Hartog Bookstore in Woden. I actually won not one, but ten copies of Parkin's novel Into the World in an Allen and Unwin book club contest, but I did restrain myself and I just went to go get one of them signed and not all ten. So if any of my book club members are listening, sorry, but snoozy lose. Local bookseller Jimmy Redden led the discussion and it was a great insight into the beginning of a career in writing, as well as the mechanics of writing historical fiction. Now, there are some interesting literary events coming up over the next month or so. There's a book launch at the National Library on the 22nd of March, the third instalment in local author L.J.M. Owen's Dr. Pym series. If you've never been along to a book launch and you're unsure about whether or not you should go along, can I tell you right now that you should always go along? Because not only can you meet the author and get your book signed, but there is almost always free wine and cheese. You can also do a free guided walking tour of the National Library on the 21st of March to celebrate the building's 50-year anniversary. And I'm still guessing that there are going to be a few events celebrating the library's anniversary coming up later on this year. The ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series is ramping up again with Mark McKenna, Clive Hamilton, whose book Silent Invasion we talked about earlier, and Jennifer Raynor, all slated to speak over the next month. So make sure you follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page to keep track of all the literary goings on in Canberra. I only managed to get through about four books over February, so it was a little bit of a slower reading month. One interesting book was The Rabbit Back Literature Society by Jaskalainen Passi Ilmari, which I totally picked up because the cover was pretty and it had the word rabbit in the title, and I love rabbits. Anyway, this Finnish novel has a dash of magic realism and is about a young woman called Ella who finds herself getting more and more embroiled in a secretive society of successful authors in her hometown. I thought the book was pretty good. There were perhaps a couple of loose ends that could have been tightened a little bit, but overall a very enjoyable read. The other interesting book that I read was Orlando by Virginia Woolf, which is actually my first ever Virginia Woolf. So one of the tiers on my Patreon page lets supporters choose a book for me to review, and my supporter and friend Kendall picked this book out for me. It's an absolutely fascinating and deeply personal story that is part love letter, part historical fiction, and part expose of gender. Wolf crammed so much into this book that it actually took me ages to finish it because I just kept flipping back to the footnotes to read more about the context of basically every other word she wrote, and believe you me, there were a lot of footnotes. Alright readers, that's it from me. I'll be back in April with plenty more book content, so if you want to support this podcast and help to keep it on air, check out the Patreon page where you can support Lost the Plot for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes, or subscribe to the Tinted Edges website to keep up to date with book news and book reviews. Thanks so much for listening.